And in your Bible this evening, congregation, uh, we invite and encourage you to turn to Colossians 1, where we'll be reading from verses 1 through 18. Uh, in your pew Bible, you can find that on page 1,352. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll then also read from what we believe is a faithful summary of the Word of God, our Belgic Confession tonight, Article 12. And you can find that on page 164 in your forms and prayers booklet in your pew rack. So we read, first of all, from the inspired Word of God this evening from Colossians 1, verses 1 through 18. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Hippaprus, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. Article 12 of our Belgic Confession is given the title, The Creation of All Things, and it states as follows, We believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing, when it seemed good to Him by His Word, that is to say, by His Son. He has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their Creator. Even now, He also sustains and governs them all according to His eternal providence, and by His infinite power that they may serve man in order that man may serve God. He has also created the angels good that they might be His messengers and serve His elect. Some of them have fallen from the excellence in which God created them into eternal perdition. 
and the others have persisted and remained in their original state by the grace of God. The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie and wait for the church and every member of it like thieves with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. So then, by their own wickedness, they are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments. For that reason, we detest the heir of the Sadducees, who deny that there are spirits and angels, and also the heir of the Manichaeans, who say that the devils originated by themselves, being evil by nature, without having been corrupted. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, tonight we turn our attention to what is, no doubt you know, a debated area of theology, that of creation. But before we note that this is a debated area of theology, I want to also set forth to you that this is a most vital area of theology. What we believe about creation is not just some sideline belief. But what we believe about creation is one of the most essential fundamental truths that makes up our worldview, the way that we perceive reality itself. You might say that there are two pressing questions to be answered. Uh, The first pressing question uh, could be stated this way, whence cometh the world? Now I know, boys and girls, that's kind of old-fashioned language. Uh, The question is just asking this, where did the world come from? And when we speak about world, in this context, where did the stars come from? Where did the trees come from? Where did the fields come from? And uh, all of the animals that fill the fields. Well, that's the first question. But then along with that question, why is there a world? What, What is the purpose of the sun and the moon and the stars? What is the purpose... Uh, of the eagles that we long anticipate that they will make their return and will once again be able to observe them as they soar upon uh, the heights of the sky. What is the purpose of the corn that has been harvested along with the soybeans and of the fields uh, that will lay dormant over the winter months? What is the purpose of all of this? Now when we ask and when we attempt to answer those questions, it's absolutely vital that we answer those questions based upon the revelation that God has given us. Yes, within the realm of creation itself, but especially with the truth that God has revealed from His Word. We ought to take these questions, not to the human experts of our day, not to the academia of our day, but rather we ought to take these questions, these two, where did the world come from and why does the world exist We ought to take these questions back to the One who created the world. And the One who has revealed to us something of how He created the world and why He created the world. And so, with faith generated and produced by the Holy Spirit within our hearts, we turn our attention to the Word of God, seeking from that Word of God to answer tonight those two basic questions. Where? Did the world come from? And why does the world exist? Uh, we'll consider these questions underneath this theme, our belief concerning creation in general. Because if you allow yourself uh, to look forward a couple of articles in the Belgian Confession, 
Article 14 deals more specifically uh, with the creation and then also the subsequent fall uh, of the human race. So we limit ourselves somewhat tonight, uh, our belief concerning creation in general. We'll notice, first of all, the source of creation, and then secondly, the purpose of creation, and then thirdly, the enemies in creation. Our belief concerning creation in general, the source, the purpose, and the enemies. The source of creation seeks to answer that first question, whence cometh the world? Where did the world come from? And what we want to do is to identify the source and then say something about the method of the source of creation. And very simply, the identity of the source is the triune God. Now, recent articles in the Belgian Confession that we've considered over the past weeks have hopefully laid out with some clarity, along with the exposition of those articles, uh, the fact, the truth, that the existence of one only God. One God with three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That one God, the Bible reveals to us as the Word of God, which even earlier articles of the Belgic Confession summarized, that one God is the originator of the created realm in its entirety. And so all of us, but boys and girls, you also, and young people, when you look out upon created reality, there's not one single aspect of the created realm which is outside the work of God. You can think of some of the majestic aspects of creation, of oceans. God created the oceans. Of mountain ranges. God created the mountain ranges. Uh, of stars that illuminate the sky. God created not just one of them, or not just some of them, but every single one of them. But you can also consider what we might call the more minute matters of creation. Uh, You might look upon the ant, uh, as the wise sayer of the Proverbs did, and consider that that ant was created by God. Uh, the flower that comes up in a day and withers away was created by God. Now we understand this only insofar as we will submit ourselves to the testimony of the Word of God. Uh, we believe this as the Christian church not necessarily based upon what we call general revelation, but rather, more specifically, based upon what we know from special revelation, the Word of God as contained in the 66 canonical books that are authoritative for our doctrine and for our life. And so what we as a Christian church and what we as individual Christians do and ought to do is we take what we perceive by our senses in the created realm, uh, the stars and the trees and the oceans uh, and the eagles and the ants, And then we hold up as what John Calvin called the spectacles or the eyeglasses of the Word of God and we then come to a proper understanding that everything that exists exists as a result of the creative work of the one true God of heaven and of earth. And we see this clearly stated. And I just give you three passages as references this evening. Genesis 1, verse 1. And the Bible opens up with a profound simplicity 
a profound simplicity that the heart of every faithful child of God ought to lay hold of. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think of how many books, how many articles, and how many moments of airspace have been consumed by the experts of our day debating the origins of all things. Yet God's Word says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can think also of John 1, verse 3, which imitates that profound simplicity It says, all things were made through the Word, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Nothing was made apart from our God, more specifically in John 1, verse 3, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think also of Hebrews 1, verse 2, speaking of the Son, says, whom also the Father made the worlds. And so while many like to get all tangled up in all sorts of speculative debate, the Word of God is really simple. And it's really clear. Whence cometh the world? From the creative work of Almighty God. This rules out uh, any type of dualism. Any type of cosmic dualism that would say, well, there are two eternal gods or two eternal principles. Uh, This rules out also pantheism uh, or panentheism, which would identify the created realm with God Himself. And, and so in our Christian theology, we must maintain a distinction between the Creator, God alone, and creation, everything else that exists outside of the one true God in His three distinct eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we learn, I trust and I hope, from our youngest days, maybe even upon our mother's knees and our grandmother's knees, uh, that God created the world and everything that is in it. Now just a note maybe to the young people of the congregation, do not be surprised when the world laughs and mocks you for that belief. Do not be surprised, but also do not be discouraged. You have the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, how did He do so? That's the method of the source that we also consider underneath the source of creation. And we first of all want to say that there is many aspects of creation which remain a mystery to us. But there are especially a number of details about creation which are very clear. And Christian theology has had a long history of using the term ex nihilo to describe that creation was a result of God speaking everything into existence out of nothing. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. And so if you read the account of the creative activity in Genesis 1 verse 2, it is not as if God just simply formed and fashioned some pre-existing material. Uh, Rather, everything that came into existence came into existence out of nothing. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And on and on it goes throughout the creation narrative. And so you can say it this way, before before the in the beginning of Genesis 1 verse 1, there was nothing except God Himself. And we could also hasten to say, 
That there was nothing that motivated God to create other than His own will. It's not as if God had to create because of some compulsory force outside of Himself, but God willed to create. And because God willed to create, He spoke things into existence that exist outside of Himself. The created realm that includes all that we see. Uh, He also created by what we call fiat, or simply by giving the command. Uh, And and here again, boys and girls, maybe you can see something of the the power of God. Because no one other than God can do this. Even even if you use some pre-existing material, which God did not use, but just for analogy, let's say you have Legos. And maybe you're going to build something out of your Legos. And so maybe they're in a box. I remember when our children were younger, the Legos were, well, they were supposed to be in a box. And then they'd dump out the whole box. And so all the Legos are in a room. So let's say you and I are playing Legos and we've got all the Legos there in the room. And you simply say, let there be a car. Well, you know what's going to happen. Nothing. The Legos are not going to submit to the authority of your voice and all of a sudden move themselves around into a car. But God speaks. And it is. Just by the authoritative voice of His command, He says, let there be light. And there is light. This already ought to begin to impress us either for the first time or by way of renewed reminder that we would bow before the majesty and the sovereignty of our great God. Who is a God like unto ours? Who can simply speak and things come into existence? The third thing that we would identify is that when God creates ex nihilo by fiat or simply commands things to exist out of nothing, He creates species. And our Article 12 is very clear on this because it reflects what is stated in Genesis 1, verse 2. And we just draw your attention to the confessional statement there in the second article, uh, paragraph rather, under Article 12. He, that is the Father, and by extension the Son and the Holy Spirit, He has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance. And so the narrative, the historical narrative... In Genesis 1, verse 2, that is not merely a myth, nor merely a legend, but records actual historic events, is very, very plain that God created everything according to its own kind. And so there is the ruling out of what we can call macroevolution, of an evolutionary process that makes great leaps from one species to another species. All of this is simply foolishness. The foolishness of those who believe that they are wise but are really not wise. Now, we well understand the reality of what we call microevolution. And those of you who are engaged in animal husbandry and on the farm, you understand microevolution through the uh, simple processes of uh, breeding and maybe selective breeding. Uh, You can, over time, come up with a, a better pig or a better cow. And we understand also the influence uh, of diet and of health care, so that on average, uh, individuals are taller than they were perhaps 200 years ago. But pigs are always pigs. And cows are always cows. They may be bigger. They may be animals with a faster rate of gain. But it would be a complete exercise in futility to try to breed in such a way that pigs turned into cows. 
And there you see something of the foolishness of this world. We understand that God created according to their kind. And so something of the source of creation that ought to motivate us to bow in humility and adoration. But then also, what is the purpose of creation? Why did God create? And here again we need to acknowledge that we are limited in our ability to understand the mind of God. We are limited insofar as He has revealed His mind to us in His Word. And following again the author of our Belgian Confession, as he follows Scripture, we can say that the purpose of creation is to serve God and to serve man. So first of all then, the purpose is to serve God. Here we think especially of what is stated in Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made all for Himself. Created realm of existence does not exist for itself. This world is not the greatest good or the greatest end. Now, we need to be careful and balanced when we talk about environmentalism, etc. But the only point we want to make here is that the created world is not the highest good. The created world is not to be worshipped, but rather the Creator is to be worshipped because everything that exists ultimately exists for the glory of God because God is the highest good. And so here again you see uh, the foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry that has long plagued the human race. The idolatry of falling down and worshiping the, the, the sun or the moon or the stars. And now maybe we in our culture become a little bit more sophisticated in our idolatry. But nevertheless, the idolatry that seeks to serve the created realm rather than the Creator still exists and still can be a temptation for us. Or perhaps uh, we don't bow down to the, the sun and the moon imitating the Egyptians of old, but perhaps we are attracted to the serving of material wealth or the uh, attainment of material goods. And we think that if our bank accounts are full and our garages are full and if our barns and bins are full, that then we can sit back and enjoy uh, the goodness of life. There's always a danger, congregation, of serving the created realm rather than the Creator. And so let us be reminded also this evening uh, that all that exists, exist to serve God and to glorify God. And let our eyes then be open to that reality. So often, maybe, maybe we avoid the sin of idolatry to some extent, but then we might fall into the trap of ignorance. How many times haven't we scanned the horizon of a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset and failed at some level to acknowledge the glory of the Creator? Well, we say there's a beautiful sunset. And indeed it is on the horizon. But that ought to then lead us to say, and what a beautiful Creator has created everything that has been involved to produce that beautiful sunset. Or maybe we look upon a mountain range and we see something of the majesty of a mountain range. As mature Christians, we should not stop with the mountain range. 
but continue to have our thoughts be lifted up from the majesty of a mountain range to the majesty of Him who sits above the mountains, who called the mountains into existence by the mere authoritative proclamation of His voice. Indeed, this is uh, the purpose of, of creation, to serve God by testifying to His divine power. Uh, but also, creation exists to serve man. And now here again, we need to be cautious uh, that we do not fall prey to be a misunderstanding. We are not to exploit creation. God has given us a task as human beings, and we'll consider this more, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, uh, to care and to exercise dominion over the created realm. But creation exists to serve man. We think here of Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15. God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. And so we do not submit ourselves to some type of a life in which we cannot enjoy the good things that God has created for us. Uh, We don't swear off the use of the proper lawful use uh, of material goods, even to uh, a point of enjoying those things that God has given us to enjoy, such as food and drink. We receive them, we trust, not just once uh, on a Thursday in November, but all throughout the days of our lives with profound senses of thankfulness that God has given us these things, that God has created these things to sustain our physical life, but also then to give us joy within our heart, that with joy within our heart, uh, we might not glorify ourselves nor exalt in ourselves, but that creation then exists to serve us so that we then might serve the Creator. And that's the connection that we especially need to, to see so that what is said then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 resonates with us. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Whatever you do in the created realm, whatever activities you have here on this earth, you do it all to the glory of God. And so this gives us a balance between a nihilistic type of a world uh, which everything is nothing, and also a hedonistic type of a world where all that is is pleasure, and the Christian then with a mature understanding of both how the world came into existence, but also why the world came into existence, we as the Christian church can then receive the created realm and all that is in it with the proper attitude and with the proper means uh, and use them for the glory of God. We do not serve nature, but nature serves us so that we might serve God. I believe that this is Uh, a most profound truth that if especially if a young person can grasp this, it will give them motivation in life. Give them a sense of meaning in life. I've said this before even from this pulpit, but one of the most heartbreaking things is to see a young person with all types of potential exercising just a despondency towards life. Just walking around, maybe verbally or maybe non-verbally, saying, I don't have a clue why I'm here. I think it's all meaningless. I think it's all pointless. 
And we especially as Christians and as a Christian church need to come along such persons. And they're not always young persons. They can be people in the middle age years or they can be people in the elderly years. And we need to lovingly and winsomely say to them, there is a purpose. God has created everything that exists by the authoritative command of His Word so that He might be glorified. And that we might receive the good things that He has created. That we might use them properly to glorify the Creator. And yet, of course, not all share that view. Because as we consider in our third point, there are enemies in creation. And these enemies are especially the fallen angels. And now much space is devoted within the Belgian Confession to this topic because of a debate that was going on in that era, especially under the Roman Catholicism. Uh, of the intermediaries, of angels, and of demons, and all of those sorts of things. And although perhaps, perhaps I say, uh, this topic is not not given as much attention as it was in the days of the Reformation, still we need to be biblical and we need to be clear in our understanding uh, of angels, both of what we call good angels and, and evil angels, fallen angels. And so in addition to the material realm... God also called forth the existence of angelic beings. Personal beings who do not have bodies, who are not composed of matter. Now we're not exactly sure because the Bible does not reveal exactly when these angelic beings were created. We can say that they were created sometime within the week of creation. Sometime after the seventh day when God proclaimed everything good a portion of these angelic beings following the lead of the archangel, now known as Satan, the adversary against Christ, they rebelled in heaven and there was the angelic fall. Underneath God's sovereignty, they rebelled against God's sovereignty and there is no redemption provided for the fallen angels. And here I just want to pause and say, what a wonder of God's grace that there is redemption provided for fallen human beings. Now we'll notice in a couple of weeks that there is a remarkable distinction between human beings and angels. Human beings bear the image of God. But there is also this remarkable distinction that God in His grace provided a Savior for fallen men, women, and children. God in His sovereign justice did not provide a Savior for the angels who rebelled and fell. And so tonight, if you hear these words, know first and foremost that there is a provided Savior for fallen men, women, boys, and girls. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. The angels who fell have no Savior. Make sure that you and I, that we embrace the Savior that God has provided. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also be warned that these angels, the fallen angels, the demons, the adversaries, be forewarned that these angels are filled with a maddening rage against everyone who follows after the Lord God. Uh, The article concludes with sobering facts. 
on the top of page 165. And much of this you could just simply see as an explanation of what is stated in 1 Peter, uh, where Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. But then I especially want to remind you tonight of this. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it. Now this is not just medieval type of a mystical demonology. This is biblical truth. Satan seeks to devour the church. He lies in wait. This is part of the reason, much of the reason, that Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And so we are here on the beginning of another week. The sobering fact is that Satan would love nothing more than to devour you. And to devour me. A special word to the leaders, the office bearers in the church. Satan and the demons laugh with hellish laughter when they can get a leader of the church to fall into sin. But also a warning for every single Christian. Satan knows his doom is sure. The only thing that gives him diabolical delight is if he can trip up the saints as they make their way to heaven and as he makes his way to hell. So see to it then in the words of the Apostle Paul that you walk circumspectly, that you walk carefully. Not because salvation itself is at stake. We believe in the sovereignty of God. But falls into sin. Make Satan laugh. And make the world laugh at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be aware of our great enemy. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9, Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And part of the way to resist Satan is to know that he is defeated. Sure, he roars, but as one writer has said, he roars as a toothless lion. He has had his power taken away by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he now is bound underneath the chains of God's sovereignty. As Jude says in Jude 6, "...and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode..." He has reserved in everlasting chains until darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now Martin Luther, to paraphrase him, and, and you probably know Martin Luther, we would say he was an open book. He wore his spiritual emotions on his sleeve. Uh, but at times he would testify uh, to being tormented by the devil, uh, by all sorts of doubts and anxieties and fears that would fill his soul. And at times he would simply tell the devil. And I don't say this uh, in, in a trite way, he would tell the devil to go back to hell. And when you find yourself tempted, and when you find perhaps your mind and your soul being filled with doubts, anxieties, and despair about your own spiritual condition, or about the condition of the church, or about the condition of the kingdom of God, through prayer, but also with a boldness Remind Satan that he is defeated. 
and His domain is hell itself. The church, through many troubles and trials, will continue to prosper into all of eternity. And who can bring an accusation against a child of God? Remind the devil of that also. As Luther often said also, when the devil came and asked Luther where his righteousness was, Luther would say to the devil, well, if you're seeking my righteousness, you must go to the right hand of the Father. And maybe you and maybe I need to remind Satan about that because he's spending time in our soul saying, where is your holiness? Where is your righteousness? Where is the basis for your acceptance with God? Then we need to say to that diabolical tempter, oh, you look for my righteousness, do you? My legal basis for acceptance with God? Well, you're not going to find Him in my own soul. You're not going to find Him in my own thoughts. Oh, there you'll find imperfect obedience. There you'll find many sins. If you're looking for my righteousness, He's not in here. He's at the right hand of the Father. And He has crushed your head. And He will crush your head. Because He is the glorious Messiah who has been crucified, but who is now risen and who has ascended into heaven, to whom be all glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for displaying something of Your glorious majesty in the work of creation. We do ask that by the revelation of Your Word and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that our eyes might be opened, that we might perceive, even in the created realm, uh, the testimony of Your glory and of Your majesty. We also pray, Father, that You would give us a biblical understanding of that world that is unseen to our physical senses. Uh, May we know with a sobering knowledge that there are those who would seek our destruction. But may we also know with the exercise of faith that Satan and all of his demonic forces have been defeated by the glorious person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so may we walk carefully, but may we also walk confidently throughout the days of the week that lie ahead. We ask in all things that your name might be honored and glorified, both now and forevermore. Amen.